Well, good morning. Welcome. My name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here. Really grateful to get to be with you guys this morning, study God's Word together. If you are new or visiting, just want to say welcome. It is good to be with you and good to have you. Oh, and also, if you are a kid who is uh, going to kids' church, then you should go now. And uh, I'm not the only one who forgets to say that. It makes me feel really good, right? So anyways, just wanted to say welcome. It is good to have you, good to be with you guys this morning. So if you, again, if you are new or visiting, just want to say, if there's any ways that we can serve you guys, if there's any ways that we can help you get connected to the community here at River City, come find me. I'd love to help you do that. Come find one of the small group leaders that you saw on the slide or that you see before or after. We'd love to help you get connected and plugged into the community here. So uh, looking forward to studying God's Word with you guys this morning. We are uh, going through the Gospel of Matthew this year together and and uh, last week what we saw is that we kind of did an overview of uh, chapters 5 through 7 in the Gospel of Matthew. And, and those are some of Jesus' most famous words, and they're, they're known or kind of understood as uh, what's called the Sermon on the Mount. And uh, like I said last week, we preached through those verses in a lot more detail, with a lot more specificity, about 18 months ago or so. And so if you want to dig in a little deeper and see more of what's going on in, the, in those passages in Matthew 5 through 7, then you can find those sermons, those links on our website. Just go to rivercitydbq.org and you'll find a link to all that kind of stuff. And, and so you can catch up that, that way if you're looking forward, if you're looking for that. So... Uh, additionally, so as we, as, we, as we head forward this morning, it's just important to understand uh, what, what's happening right before our passage. We're going to be in chapters 8 and 9 this morning, but at the end of chapter 7, which, where Matthew concludes Jesus' great Sermon on the Mount, it, it concludes with these words, and they're really important as we set the stage for where we're headed this morning. So Matthew chapter 7 concludes this way. It says, and when Jesus, Jesus had finished saying these things, when he had finished the Sermon on the Mount... The crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. You see, Jesus, over and over, Matthew is trying to show us in the Sermon on the Mount, he's trying to show us Jesus' authoritative word. Jesus is king. He's the king of all peoples, of all nations, of all times, and all places, and his word is authoritative. Over and over we heard throughout the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus saying, you've heard it said, but I say to you. What Jesus is saying is, I'm not telling you about what someone else said. I'm not giving you commentary on what someone else said. I'm giving you what I say. And I have the authority to, to give that. You see, Jesus is not just a messenger for some other king. He's not just a representative of someone else. You see, Jesus is God. He is the true king, and his word has the final authority. And so now in chapters 8 and 9, after the Sermon on the Mount, what Matthew is doing is he's going to present us nine stories that are set in groups of three. And we're not going to go through all of them together. We're just going to take the first three this morning. But in each of these stories, what's happening is that Jesus is exercising his kingly rule and authority as he brings the kingdom to bear in the lives of hurting and broken people by miraculously healing or saving them. One commentator notes it this way. What Matthew is showing us is that Jesus' divine authority is manifest not only in his preaching, but in his deeds as well. You see, what Matthew is trying to do is he's connecting for us that Jesus speaks with authority and Jesus acts with authority because Jesus is the one who has all authority. You see, authority, I think, sometimes is seen as a dirty word in our culture. It's often, it often like, carries a lot of baggage with it, that idea of authority. 
And that's often, I think, because we are all too familiar with people or places or situations in which people have used their authority for their own benefit at the expense of others. We see that happening constantly. It's, it's all around us. People use their authority for their own good, often at the expense of others. Not only not for the other good of others, but at the expense of others. Whether that's socially or ethnically or financially or familially, there is all these different ways that we see people using their authority to benefit themselves at the expense of others. But the way that we see Jesus exercising his kingly authority throughout these chapters is unlike anything we see anywhere else. It's unlike anything we see anywhere else because because unlike anyone else, Jesus speaks and acts with absolute authority. Jesus speaks and acts with absolute authority. He reports to no one. He has no one that holds him to account. But instead of exercising his absolute authority for his own benefit, what we see is that at his own expense, he uses his authority to bless others. You see, instead of using his authority for his own benefit, at his own expense, he uses it to bless others. You see, and that shows us that it is good news when the authoritative word and work of Jesus is brought to bear in our lives. You see, it is good news when the authoritative word and work of Jesus is brought to bear in our lives. And as we study our passage this morning, what I want to show you is three things that happen and three things that we see happening when Jesus' kingly authority is brought to bear and then two ways that we're called to respond to that. So with that in mind, let's pray and we'll dive into our passage this morning. Jesus, we just come before you and we just say we really need you. God, I just sense a dependence on you this morning, just like I'm keenly aware of it. God, I don't have what I need in order to preach and teach your word rightly without you being the one who fills me and speaks through me. And so, God, I just come dependent on you. God, we need you to, I need you so that I might speak rightly and teach rightly. And we need you as well so that we might hear and respond rightly. And Jesus, this morning, as, as, as we study your word, God, I pray more than anything that what we would do is that we would see you as beautiful. God, that we would see you as, as being under your authority as good news for our hearts and our lives. God, and that we would actively seek to put ourselves under your authority. God, for our good, for your glory. I pray these things. We need your help this morning. In your good name, amen. Amen. Well, we are in Matthew. We're going to read chapter, 27, or chapter 7, verse 28 through 817. So when Jesus had finished saying these things, again, this is the end of the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority, not as their teachers of the law. And when Jesus came down from the mountainside, large crowds followed him. And a man with leprosy came and knelt before him. And he said, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And Jesus reached out his hand and he touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately he was cleansed from his leprosy. And then Jesus said to him, See that you don't tell anyone, but go and show yourself to the priests and, and offer the gift Moses commanded as a testimony to them. And when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a, a centurion came to him asking for help. Lord, he said, My servant lies at home paralyzed, suffering terribly. And Jesus said to him, Shall I come and heal him? And the centurion replied, Lord, I do not deserve to have you come under my roof. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I, am, uh, for I myself am a man who is under authority, with soldiers under me. I tell this one, go, and he goes. I tell that one, come, and he comes. And I say to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, Truly I tell you, I have, found no, I have not found anyone in Israel with such great faith. 
And I say to you that many will come from the east and will come from the west and will take their place at the feast with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown out into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done just as you have believed it would. And his servant was healed at that moment. And Jesus came into Peter's house. He saw Peter's mother-in-law lying in bed with a fever, and he touched her hand, her hand, and the fever left her. And she got up, and she began to wait on him. And, and when evening came, many who were demon-possessed were brought to him, and he drove out spirits with a word and healed all the sick. And this was to fulfill what was, what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities, and he bore our diseases. You see, this morning what we see is the authoritative word and work of Jesus being brought to bear in people's lives. And there's three things that we see happening when that happens. One, the sick are healed. Two, the outcasts are included. And three, the contaminated are cleansed. You see, the first thing we see is that the sick are healed. See, hopefully one of the things that you've noticed as we read was that each of these stories was tied together by a miraculous healing. You don't have to be paying that close of attention. Hopefully that's what you noticed, right? Matthew's emphasis, he emphasized the, is the immediacy and the totality of the healings in order to highlight the miraculous nature as evidences of Jesus' divine authority. In verse 3 and 4, it says, Immediately the leper was cleansed and told to go show proof of this healing to the priest. In verse 13, the centurion's servant was healed at that moment. Verse 15, Jesus touched Peter's mother-in-law. Not only did the fever leave her, it says, but she got up and she began to wait on him. You see, one of the biggest problems that modern-day people often have with Jesus and the Bible is the miracles. See, science says miracles can't happen. They're a violation of the rules of nature. And I just don't know if I can trust a a book or a person that that believes in that kind of thing. And there's just three things I want to say in response to that as we study this morning. The first is that it's okay to have doubts and questions. It's easy to hear that. It's okay to have doubts and questions, right? The disciples, they get to the end. Jesus has been resurrected. He's shown them his hands and his feet. He's rising up into heaven, and it says some of them believed and some doubted. So if the disciples had some doubts on their their own hands, it's okay, right? It's okay for you to have some questions and some doubts. It's okay for that to happen. Just what's not okay is for you to leave it there. You see, Jesus wants you to bring your questions and bring your doubts to him. Don't just leave it in that place of unending questioning and unending certainty. Pursue the answers to those questions. Wrestle with those things. Have an eternal significance. It's important. Secondly, the truth is to say unequivocally that science proves that miracles can't happen is a leap of faith in and of itself. See, it's a statement that's not actually based in science. It's based in philosophy because it's a statement that cannot be tested and cannot be proven. Right? And so to say that miracles cannot happen unequivocally is just as much as a leap of faith as it is to say that they can. And lastly, and probably most importantly, as Tim Keller writes in his book, The Reason for God, although we often think of miracles as a suspension of the natural order, Jesus meant for them to be a restoration of the natural order. You see, the Bible tells us that Keller writes, the Bible tells us that God did not originally make the world to have disease or hunger or death in it. Sin brought those things. It said Jesus has come to redeem where it is wrong and heal the world where it is broken. His miracles are not just proofs that he has power, but also a wonderful foretaste of what he is going to do with that power. You see, Jesus' miracles are not just a challenge to our minds. They are a promise to our hearts 
that the world we all want is coming. You see what Keller is writing there in, in his quote. He says, what he's saying is that the, those, those miraculous healings, they're not Jesus' random drive-by acts of kindness. That's not what's going on here. No, they are an intentional, deliberate demonstration of his authority, of the authority of his work and his word. And they're meant to be evidence that confirms his authority and, and demonstrates the authority the authority of his work of, of his word by showing it in, in action. But more than that, what Keller is telling us here is that they're meant to give us a taste of what life is like when Jesus' authority is brought to bear in the world. You see, it's like that piece of pot roast that you sneak from the crock pot just to make sure it's done. You know it's done, right? You know. But you just gotta make sure, right? And you taste it and you're like, oh, this is gonna be an incredible lunch, right? You love that, right? It's this, it's this wonderful foretaste. It's a glorious preview of, of how good that meal is actually going to be. You see, what's happening here, when we see Jesus' miracles as he, as he does those, they're, they're not just this random suspension of the natural order. What we see is Jesus beginning to give us glimpses of what it looks like when he renews all things and brings them back to the way they were supposed to be. You see, that's the way things were in the garden before sin entered, and it will be the way things are when Jesus returns to consummate the kingdom that he inaugurates here in Matthew. You see, but the miraculous demonstration of Jesus' authoritative word and work is not just a glimpse of the way that his kingdom works physically, it's a glimpse of the good news of the way his kingdom works relationally. You see, because when Jesus' kingly authority is brought to bear, not only are the sick healed, but we see that the outcasts are included. You see, there's three stories that are, they're not only linked by what happens in them, they're, they're linked by who it is happening to. You see, each of the three people that Jesus heals, they belong to a group that was, uh, that was excluded from full life in Jewish society, a leper, a Gentile, and a woman. You see, leprosy, it was this horrifically disfiguring and contagious skin disease that fundamentally excluded people from community. It was wildly contagious. You literally, if you had leprosy, you literally had to yell out if you if you even saw someone that wasn't that didn't have leprosy you literally had to yell out unclean so you were wildly isolated it was it was incredibly you you were pushed to the edges women like peter's mother-in-law were often seen as second-class citizens who who had little to no rights and were often excluded from various aspects of religious life And, and lastly the roman centurion he was a Gentile, a non-Jew, an outsider, and if that wasn't bad enough, he was a leader in an invading army. It's like, you know, like in The Grinch Stole Christmas, right? He's, he's looking down on Whoville, and he's like, hate, 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 double hate, loathe entirely, right? That's, that's, how the, that's how the people would have seen this Roman centurion. You see, and so with each of these people, what we see is that when Jesus' kingly rule and authority is brought to bear, the outcasts are included. Foreigners become citizens. You see, the good news of Jesus' kingdom is, is that it is faith in him that is the requirement for entrance into his kingdom. Not your health, not your gender, not your ethnicity, not your religious heritage. That's what Jesus is talking about in verses 11 through 12. He's, he's amazed by the centurion's faith. He's amazed by it, and he says, he says, many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, but the subjects of the kingdom will be thrown out into the darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. You see, it's the same thing that John the Baptist was, teaching, was telling the Pharisees back in chapter 4 when he, he said, your, your ethnic, your, your religious heritage, that's not saving you. That's not changing your status or your standing with God. It's not the thing that makes you right with him. 
You see, it's a humble and repentant faith. That's what brings you into right standing with God. And if you're counting on your religious heritage or your ethnicity to be the thing that makes you right with God, then you are going to be sorely disappointed when he inaugurates his, when he consummates his kingdom and you are left out. You see, Jesus' kingdom is incredibly inclusive. It welcomes the outcasts. It welcomes women and Gentiles and lepers. It's not just for one race or one gender or one ethnicity. Revelations chapter 7 verse 9 tells us this, that in heaven there will be people from every nation, tribe and tongue and language. See, Jesus' kingdom is incredibly inclusive, but you need to hear this, right? Jesus' kingdom is also wildly exclusive as well. You see that multitude from every tribe and tongue and, and nation and people? What they're doing is Revelation 7, 9 goes on to say that they are crying out, salvation belongs to our God, the one who sits on the throne, to the Lamb. See, Jesus is not a way, a truth, a life. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. There is no other way to right relationship with God than through him. Jesus unequivocally and unabashedly proclaims that that is what he says about himself. You see, his kingdom, Jesus' kingdom, it has one king, not many, and he is the one on the throne. You see, it was not something that made Jesus popular today, and it's not something that made him popular back then. It didn't win him any friends with the religious establishment of his day. In fact, it caused them to hate him even more, but it was, and it is good news for us. You see, because he is not a king who has some authority, he's a king who has all authority. And when his authority is brought to bear, the sick are healed. The outcasts are included. And lastly, and most importantly, what we see is that when Jesus' authority is brought to bear, the contaminated are cleansed. You see, we cannot miss the significance of what happens to this man with leprosy who comes to Jesus. You see, leprosy was not only a physically terrible disease that, that isolated people, that, that, that was deadly because of its deadly, contagious spreading. You know, it was a defiling disease that made anyone who, who had it ceremonially unclean and therefore excluded from religious life and the people of God You see, the leper did not simply need to be physically healed. He needed to be cleansed. You see, we cannot miss this. And one commentator writes, you see, leprosy is a vivid and graphic physical picture of the spiritual defilement of sin. You see, sin is ugly and loathsome. It is incurable and it is contaminating. It separates us from God and makes us outcasts and exiles. You see, and like leprosy, sin is inside of us. It's deeper than the surface. And like leprosy, you see, sin also spreads. And like leprosy, sin always defiles and it always isolates. And like leprosy, sin is incurable. You see, it's incurable without Jesus. See, verse 3, Jesus reaches out his hand and he touched the man. He says, I am willing. Be clean. Immediately the man was cleansed from all of his leprosy. You see, not only was this man healed, the passage says he was cleansed. See, Jesus was removing his physical suffering of his disease. He's removing the relational suffering of his isolation. But But most importantly, what Jesus is doing is Jesus is removing his spiritual suffering. You see, Jesus is solving this man's biggest problem, his separation from God and his people, that his sickness embodied, you see. And that's the good news of the gospel, 
See, that's what, what's happening here in our passage. You see, these miracles, they're not just good news for the people that heal. They're not just good news for this leper and this centurion servant and, and this woman. No, you see, these, they're good news for us because it's the, in this cleansing of this man, what we see is that Jesus didn't just come to alleviate physical symptoms. What we see is that Jesus came to cure the disease itself. You see, and the disease that Jesus has come to cure is that of sin. It's one we are all infected with. And verse 17 shows us how he did it. Quoting the famous messianic passage in Isaiah 53, Matthew writes this. He says, this was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. He took up our infirmities. He bore our diseases. You see what Matthew is saying when the, is that when the authority of Jesus' word and work comes to bear, The sick are healed, the outcasts are included, the contaminated are cleansed because Jesus didn't come to judge sin only. He came to bear the judgment of sins for us so that we might be healed, that we might be included, that we might be cleansed. You see, he took up our sickness, he took up our weakness, he bore the consequences for the disease of our sin so that instead of being crushed under his just judgment of our sinful rebellion, we would instead be healed from our disease and included in the family of God because we have been cleansed from sin and all unrighteousness by the one who bore the weight of it for us. You see, Jesus did not... come to temporarily alleviate the symptoms of sin. He came to cure the disease itself. You see, he is the true king with whom all authority rests. And he is the one cure that our sinful hearts need. You see, he is the one to whom we must respond. And that's what we see what the passage is showing us here. In the leper and in the centurion, they model for us the right response to Jesus' authoritative word and work. When, when his word and work and authority are brought to bear, what we see is that the right way to respond is a, a humble and confident faith in him. See, both of these men, they come in humility. Verse 3, the leper says, Lord, if you are willing. The, in verse 9, the centurion asks of Jesus, Lord, I don't even deserve to have you come under my roof. You see, they, these guys, they don't demand anything of Jesus. For what they know is that they have no right to demand anything of this king. But they don't just come in humility, they come in a confident faith. You see, verse 3, the leper says, goes on, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. The centurion, although you, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, he says, just say the word and my servant will be healed. You see, what both of these men realize beyond any shadow of a doubt is that what they need is Jesus. He is the one that they need. He is the only one who can meet their needs. You see, and you need to see this. This is so important. These men, they are not saved by the amount of their faith. They're saved by the object of their faith. You see, the object of their faith is Jesus. He is the one who, in whom their faith is put. You see, in the good news of Jesus' authoritative word and work being brought to bear here in Matthew 8 and, and what we'll see in 20 chapters later in the cross itself, is that not only is Jesus able to cleanse, he is willing. You see, the only right response to the authoritative word and work of Jesus is a humble and confident faith in him as the Savior and the King of all. You see, to experience the blessing of his kingdom, you have to surrender to him as King. 
I hope what you guys are seeing this morning is why it is good news to put yourself under the authority of Jesus. You see, to be under the authority, to willingly put ourselves under the authority of someone else, that feels like this incredibly foreign idea to us. We fight authority. We, we want independence from authority. And what Jesus says is, not only do you need my authority, when you come under my authority, it is good news for you. It brings healing and inclusion, and it brings cleansing. It is what you need. It brings life and blessing and flourishing where only before there was death. You see, it's good news to be under Jesus' authority. Sometimes it can feel scary to, to, to willingly say, Jesus, you're king. I submit to you. Your rule and reign, what you say is complete, is enough. I will choose to obey. I will choose to put myself under your authority. That can feel scary. But what we see in our passage this morning is that it is always good news. It is always full of life and blessing to put ourselves under the authority of King Jesus. But the passage doesn't just show us how to come under the authority of Jesus. Peter's mother-in-law, she, she models for us how we are to live once we have been healed. Verse 15, Jesus touched her hand and the fever left her. It says, and she got up and began to wait on him. You see, once we are healed, we don't just go our own way. We go a new way. We have a new life and a new calling. And it's to serve the king who has come to rescue us. You see, and as his servant ambassadors, we are commissioned and we're empowered by the king to bring his kingdom to bear wherever he sends us, wherever he commissions us, whether that's your families or your workplaces or your neighborhoods or your friendships or your relationships. You see, it means that we use the authority that we are given, like the king used his authority towards us to heal the sick and to include the outcast and to cleanse the contaminated. You see, you and I, we, we don't have power to heal the sick, but Jesus can. And he and we can serve as advocates and representatives before God before the, for those who are sick. You see, God is a good father over and over throughout the Bible. The Bible tells us that God is a good father. It says that he wants us to come to him and ask us. He wants us to ask him for what we need. He's a good father who loves when his kids come to talk with him, to let them know what he needs and, and what they desire. But God is a good father. And a good fathers don't always give their kids what they want. You see, God doesn't always heal when we pray. Sometimes he does, but he doesn't always heal. And that doesn't mean that he is not able, and it doesn't mean that he's not good. It means that he really does love us, and if we knew what he knew, we would know his love. You see, God's, God's actions can be confusing and hard sometimes. But we can confidently trust in who he is and who he has proven himself to be. You see, God has proven that he is good. He has proven that he loves. He has proven that he is not far off and distant, but he is intimately engaged. Additionally, we don't just pray for the healing of those who are sick. We pursue and include the powerless and the outcast, sometimes at our own expense, whether that be socially or financially. There's historian Rodney Stark. He wrote a book about the rise of Christianity in the Roman Empire, and, and especially one of the things that he notes throughout the story of this book is that it was the lives of Christians that were seen in stark contrast to the world around them that brought such clarity and good news about the gospel. He writes this concerning uh, how Christians responded when the great plagues went through the Greco-Roman Empire in the early 2nd and 3rd centuries. He said, most people, most people headed for the hills. 
But most Christians in the plague showed unbounded love and loyalty, never sparing themselves, only thinking of others. Heedless of the danger, they took charge of the sick, attended to their needs, ministering to them in Christ. He closes quoting this. And in many, in nursing and curing others, transferred their deaths onto themselves. And died in their stead. You see, that's what Jesus has done for us. Isaiah 53 tells us that Jesus bore our sickness. He is the one who took on our infirmities. He died so that we might live. You see, that's what it looks like to respond to him. You see, the sick during the plagues of the early Roman Empire, they were the outcasts and the powerless. And what those Christians realized is that they were not unlike them at all. They were the outcasts and they were the powerless. They were the sick and the unclean that Jesus had come to rescue. So the question for us is, who, who are the powerless or outcasts that God has put in our lives? In your work or in your neighborhood or, or at your kids' schools? What would it look like for us to bring the good news of the gospel to bear in the lives of people around us? Emma's just started going to school this year, and one of the things I often talk with her on the way to school is, is, I, is I want her to keep an eye out for people who are new to school. For people who might be on the edges, for people who might need someone to invite them into community. And I love hearing stories when she comes home and tells me about the ways that she has invited friends to play with her or pursued those on the fringes. See, we need to teach our kids to pursue those on the margins as Jesus pursued us. You see, you and I, we were the outcasts. We were the unclean. We were those who were on the outsides. And Jesus is the king who has come to rescue and pursue us. Lastly, we bring cleansing to all those who are contaminated, not in our own power, but like the, the leper did, by heralding the testimony of what Jesus had done for us. You see, Jesus, he told the leper to, to not go tell anybody, just go show the priests. You know what the leper did? He told everyone. We don't see that in the passage here, but if you look in the Gospel of Mark, you see the parallel story. He just goes around and yells. He just tells everyone about what Jesus did and who he was. He's heralding this story about Jesus' miraculous power to cleanse and save and renew. You see, and we are just like that leper, and we're just like the centurion. We are just like the woman who are the sick and outcasts who need to be cleansed, not merely from physical diseases or from social abnormalities. Rather, we need to be cleansed from the source of the disease itself. We need to be cleansed from sin. You see, we needed Jesus, and the good news for us and others is that Jesus is not only able, he is willing to heal and to include and to cleanse for our good, but more than anything, for his great glory. You see, that's what we remember, and that's what we celebrate in communion. You see, the bread and the drink, they remind us of Jesus' body and blood, which were broken and shed for us. As he lived the life that we should have lived, and as he died the death that we should have died, he paid the penalty our sinful rebellion deserved. He bore our sickness and our death so that we might enjoy the blessings of his life. You see, and so every week when we take communion, what we're doing is we are celebrating and we're remembering the life we have that we should not. 
and the freedom we have that we should not, and the healing that we have that we should not, and the inclusion that we have that we should not, and the cleansing that we have that we should not. That's what we celebrate and remember and cherish and herald every week when we take communion. See, it's not just a religious symbol. It's not just a religious ritual that we go through. It is a remembrance for our hearts about who Jesus has made us to be and who we now are because of him. And so this morning, if you have trusted Jesus and believed the gospel, if you have put your hope in him, if he is your savior and your king, then during our time of worship, go back and take communion. Do it as a celebration, remembering that Jesus is the one who healed you, and he is the one who included you in his family when you shouldn't have been included. And he is the one who cleansed you, not just from physical diseases, but from spiritual unrighteousness. He is the one who has made you new. You don't need to be a member here at River City to take communion. You just need to belong to Jesus. Some of you here this morning, you don't belong to him yet. And you need to hear this. He is offering you an invitation to come and follow. The same invitation that he extended to heal and include and cleanse the, the leper and the centurion servant and the woman this morning, he offers. He, he, he holds it out to you. But you must receive it. You have to receive it from him. You see, and to receive it from him means you need to choose to come under his good authority with a humble and repentant and confident faith in him. You see, he is the one you need. He is the only one you need, and he has come for you. And so receive him. Put yourself under the authority of his life and his work. For all of, this, all of us this morning, as we do, have we responded to King Jesus? Have we surrendered in humble and confident faith to his authority? If not, don't wait anymore. Do that. He's, he's calling, he has, he has come for you this morning, and you are here if you have not surrendered to him because he is pursuing you and calling you to give yourself under his a good, a good authority, and he is offering a life that you so desperately long for. He has what you need. Come get it from him. If you have surrendered to him, if you have put your life under his good authority, then the question this morning is, are you living as his commissioned ambassadors? Bringing the blessings of his kingdom to bear in the lives of others, would you use the authority that King Jesus has given you to bear witness about his kingdom? You see, not for your own good, but at your expense for the good of others so that the king of all things, the one whose word and whose work have no bounds, that he might receive glory in your life and in your family and in your workplace and in your friendships in this age and in every one to come. You see, he is worth giving everything for. There's a life and blessing there. Let us pray. Jesus, we come to you this morning and we just say we are so humble and grateful for you. Jesus, we come to you not as those who are perfect, but those who are, God, who are needing to be healed and needing to be included and needing to be cleansed. You see, we are not on the inside. We are on the outside without you, Jesus. And, and because of you, if we put our faith in you, God, you have included us in your family and you have healed us from our sicknesses. But most importantly, you have healed us from the, the ultimate sickness of sin and death. And so, Jesus, our, our, conf our hope is in you. 
And our faith is in you. And our confidence is in you, Jesus. You have what we need. Nothing else and no one else gives the life we are looking for just you. And so, Jesus, I pray that you would graciously call those who have not put themselves under your authority this morning, that they would come under your authority by your spirit, that you would draw them and call them, that they would joyfully, for the first time this morning, choose to put themselves under your good authority, that they might experience the life and the blessing that it is to be ruled by you, the good king of all. And Jesus, we need your power as your people, God, not to live for our own good, but for the good of others, and most importantly, for your glory. God, and we pray that you would call us and cause us and empower us to use the authority that we have been given, whether that's in our workplaces or our neighborhoods or our families or, or wherever it is that you have sent us, Jesus, that we might use the authority you have given us to bear witness about your good authority, that, that the way we use authority would be, the, would be in likeness of the way that you have, that we would use our authority to pursue the healing of those who are sick and, and to pursue the inclusion of those who are on the outsides and, and to pursue the cleansing of those who are contaminated by sin, Jesus, not because of we have anything to bring but because you have brought everything and so god we ask god that you might use us to make your name great that we all might come under the good news of your great authority your word and your work god we love you thanks that you have loved us first help us to live in light of that amen